Welcome to episode 213 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. In September of 2020, China set its Shuangtan, which means dual carbon, goals of peak CO2 emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2060. Since then, China has taken significant steps in both the power sector policy and renewable energy manufacturing policy to help it achieve those goals. The Oxford Institute for Energy Studies recently published a paper titled, Three Years On, Assessing Power Sector and Renewable Energy Manufacturing Policy in China Since the Announcement of Dual Carbon Goals, and its author is Herbert Crowther. He's an analyst for energy, clim uh, climate, and resources at Eurasia Group, and he joins us from New York. Herbert, welcome to Energy Talks. Thanks very much, Mark. I'm glad to be here. This, you know, I've been banging on in this podcast now for months about the role of China in driving the energy, the global energy transition. And I think that that uh, most of my audience, I, I would say most Canadians, for sure, simply don't understand. They, they don't have a good, uh, good grasp of the energy transition issues, where it's going, and certainly not China's role in it. And my take on this, uh, we'll start kind of at the We'll start at the the big picture, the thirty five thousand foot level, and then we'll zero in on on the po the power sector. I want to spend a little bit of time there, but I'd like to spend most of the, the our time together talking about the clean energy uh, industry, industrial policy. So my take on this, my hypothesis, Herbert, is that twenty twenty five years ago, uh, China looked around and said, "Okay, look, like you know, we're not we have a, an auto sector, for example, but we're never going to catch the Americans and the Europeans and the and the Koreans and Japanese in internal combustion engine technology. It's not going to happen. So let's start working on what it calls new energy technologies, such as electric vehicles and batteries and all of that. And they've they put a tremendous amount of resources, financial resources. They've developed the technology. More importantly, they've scaled it up." And now they they dominate about 70 to 80 percent of the industry related to solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, electric vehicles and so on. And but since 2020, and this is what I found really interesting about your paper. The policy changes that came uh, in 2020 have now accelerated that even further, even faster. And and China's lead over the U.S. and and uh, and Europe has has uh, has even widened even further. Is that a reasonable approach to this? Uh, yeah, I think that's right, Mark. I mean, it's been it's been a very long journey for China to the sort of dominance which it sees now across these different industries. I think from an analytical and historical point of view, we can sort of roughly separate the past 20 years into three primary categories, which really inform the sort of adoption curves of these industries within China. The first is, I would say, broadly the period from around 2000 to about 2008. And in that period, you know, environmentalism in China was just sort of starting to take off, but it wasn't really a high priority political issue yet. Um, but rather what we have are the very nascent beginnings of the solar PV industry, the offshore, the, the onshore wind industry, et cetera, being promoted in China from a top down level, just as an industrial policy playbook. So at this point in time, it's not really associated with emissions reductions 
or anything which we would sort of ideologically consider kind of green, so to speak. It's primarily for export, you know, by 2008, 95% of China's solar was exported to the, to the US or EU. Very little policy support on the domestic side for consuming renewable energy, all about production, right? After 2008, after the global financial crisis, we see the global markets for a lot of these industries become not as welcoming for Chinese exports and China is forced to reorient domestically. We also see in that period the start of, for example, uh, a lot of attention on clean air, you know, famously with the 2008 Beijing Olympics, but then with the Clean Air Action Plan in 2013. Um, and we see a really big uh, suite of policies in the 2010s to, pr to promote domestic consumption of renewables. And this is when basically the sort of green agenda really starts taking off in China. And um, from the very beginning for President Xi Jinping, green priorities are are emphasized quite strongly, you know, even from 2012, he's always talking about ecological civilization, beautiful China, so on and so forth. So um, you can see the development of these happening throughout the 2010s as, as, as the industrial growth continues as well. And then, as you mentioned, the real, I would say, zenith of all of this comes in September 2020 when we get the Shuangtang goals, the dual carbon goals. And, you know, given China's political system where this top-down blessing is so important, when she goes to the UN General Assembly and makes this big speech and really cements his personal political legacy on environmental issues with this, basically green industries in China become almost unassailable, right, without reproach in terms of uh, if you're a local government official and you want to promote them, if you're an entrepreneur and you want to get into them, you know that these industries are kind of, quote unquote, safe. Um, so now we have both the domestic market in China is absolutely on fire for a lot of these technologies, just staggering numbers this year. China could do over 150 gigawatts of solar installations. That's almost the entire U.S solar fleet historically. Um, but at the same time, we have uh, international growth through the roof as well. So now these Chinese renewable firms are considering both exports and the domestic market. And from that point of view, it's it's a big economic boon for them. Yeah, that's something that we're just seeing and I think starting to take notice of in, in uh, North America, driven by EV exports. Because the, the we're starting to see EVs now. There's a big controversy between China and Europe over over EV exports and whether are they overly subsidized. There's going to be an investigation. Mm -hmm. I, geez, I wonder what that's going to find out. <laughs> I wonder what the, the conclusion will be of the EU study when they have their own EV industry to promote. Okay. But anyway, this, I mean, but we're not just, you know, the, the Europe European conflict with, with uh, China over EVs has overshadowed the story of, the, of, of these uh, export companies setting up shop in in the low to middle income companies, countries. And, and I think this is one of the glaring errors of the OPEC, uh, the recent OPEC uh, crude oil forecast that was really, I was actually released last week or the week before that. And that is they assume that the uh, middle income countries in particular will stick with fossil fuel and particularly oil and gas infrastructure and, and technology. But I think, you know, my take on this, and I think the IEA agrees, is that the the Chinese companies are going to go in there. They're going to provide low cost uh, technology, better technology, and and if you're Africa or you're Latin America and, and you need electricity for your village or your city, you know why would you put up a coal power plant when you can adopt solar? And you've got a, you know, and then China's got its Belt and Road Initiative to support all of that. So 
I think what we're seeing now, this kind of reminds me of, of the U.S. after 1945, when you know the U.S. emerged as the great industrial power that that it was for 40 or 50 years. And it kind of it looks like that. And I, so your your take on that. Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, you know, China has a serious sort of anxiety about um, oil imports on a both strategic and economic level. It's always been um, extremely outpaced in the traditional ICE auto sector writ large. And, you know, for example, you know, big German corporations have had a very long history of engagement in China, which has been a big boon for Germany. But from the Chinese perspective, sometimes not really seen as 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 the peak uh, amount of performance which they could be aspiring to right um and what we see now i think with you know companies like byd and neo starting to really push some of their uh low price models internationally is definitely a totally different framework for ev adoption than what we might be more exposed to in the us or canada or eu and i think that does uh, tend to some um, some potential misconceptions. At the same time, you know there are interesting dynamics playing out within the Chinese EV sector. You know there are so many uh, Chinese EV startups. Uh, I think you know there's hundreds of them. You can find the most recent data. It's just staggering how many companies are in this <laughs> sector right now um, in China. So there will be a big sort of you know market uh, market market. Uh, consolidation over the next few years and where all of that uh all of that uh, intellectual property goes all of the 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 cost reductions which are part of that will be a really central driver both of China's uh energy transition but I think you're exactly right that in a lot of other third countries which maybe don't have the same trade restrictions that the US or EU has in place on on, on Chinese EVs uh it'll have a huge effect on their purchasing patterns as well yeah, I mean, wasn't it BYD that just introduced the Dolphin or one of it was Dolphin, something like that? Yeah. yeah, and it was it's like a ten or ten thousand or eleven thousand uh, dollar US uh, EV. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's road ready and it looks like a smart little smart little unit. If I'm looking at Latin America, you know, where well, I was in the Philippines uh, some you know a couple of decades ago, and they were driving Toyota Corollas. Well, mm -hmm. you know, do I want a do I want a dolphin or do I want a you know a, a twenty five thousand dollar Toyota Corolla? Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk about uh, one more thing. We'll get into the power sector in a second, but one thing I, I want to talk about because I don't understand this very well at, uh, either. But we tend to think of China as a top down, you know, kind of an autocratic government. It's you know, uh, uh, collective capitalism, or you know, it. But the provincial governments and local governments play a really key role in this. And maybe you could explain that for us. Yes, certainly. So so China is very top down in the sense of setting, I would say, political priorities and industries which are to be focused on. So, you know, on a national level, every five years, they produce a five year plan, which which sets very high level targets about what should be prioritized and what shouldn't. But the nature of the Chinese system is it then falls to all of the local governments, particularly the provincial governments, as you mentioned, to actually set action plans for how those goals can be implemented. And sort of the blessing or maybe local officials in China might say a little bit of a curse of that system is they aren't told by the central government how they should achieve it. Right. The central government gets to say, please do this. 
And then the local governments have to either, you know, get the get the praise or face the criticism if they're unable to achieve those targets. Um, and different provinces in China have different interests uh, and different historical specialties. So historically, the big sort of manufacturing powerhouses have been the provinces along the eastern coast of China, you know, near Hong Kong, near Shanghai, near Jiangsu. These are uh, these are very, uh, very, very kind of technologically uh, very gifted on a manufacturing point of view. Today, we see an interesting shift towards more western and northern provinces in China, which are historically less developed than the coastal provinces. Um, and they're really prioritizing these new energy industries because for them, it's an area where they're confident that they can attract capital from, uh, from, from domestic sources of capital and where they can get political protection to promote these industries. Uh, so now you have the situation where on a geographic point of view, you know, if you compare it um, to other countries, you have both the legacy uh, manufacturing areas and the sort of new high income uh, provinces both getting into this business. Yeah, you 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 talked a little bit about in your paper about Inner Mongolia, yeah. which has some cheap energy and it has lots of opportunity to install wind and solar so it can provide cl clean energy and and. Uh, the local governments are setting up these big industrial parks, which then you have, it's not startups necessarily who are investing in there and setting up there. It would be these established companies along yeah. the East coast that are now moving some operations into the, into these interior provinces. And so they, they already come with supply chains and access to capital. Yeah. And, and, you know, they know how to, they know how to build factories and build and build the products. And, yeah. and really what they need is policy support and, and land and all of those things, which the provinces can provide. Yep, that's exactly right. And, you know, there's two really important parts of this discussion. And one is that the companies which have survived the 2010s to become China's big renewable energy manufacturing companies right now are real behemoths. They are really big companies, which are huge drivers of employment, of local taxes, etc. And the economic might which they're able to put behind these factories is really, really huge. And the second thing to note here is that in the Chinese system, even the state-owned enterprises in traditional energy, you know, the big coal companies or Sinopec, the, the companies which are SOEs from a fossil fuel point of view are also participating in a lot of these projects. Um, because they're they are sort of more inclined to go along with them with this level of top-down guidance. And that's why Shuangtan was so important a few years ago. I have a little anecdote that, that I found very amusing. So in September, um, the World Petroleum Congress was in Calgary. And I went to one of the, the plenary sessions and there was uh, Amir Amin Nasser from the CEO of Saudi Aramco. And there was Darren Woods, who's the CEO of ExxonMobil. And then there was a, a, a Sinopec uh, executive who I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the his name and he needed a translator. But Everybody focused on what Nasser and and the uh, and Wood were saying. Woods were saying, you know, about about oh, it's going to be oil and gas for decades and decades, and don't worry about it. And the Sinopec executive said, well, yes, you know, we're going to be doing these things, and but we're going to be investing in new energy technologies, and we're going to be doing this, and that just completely went over the head the head of the crowd. They, yeah. they, they didn't get the significance of his comments whatsoever. And from my point of view, he was the most interesting guy on that panel. Mm -hmm. Well, if I'm not mistaken, the first really major green hydrogen pilot project in China was announced a few weeks ago, a collaboration between between Longji, which is the biggest solar producer, and Sinopec. And it's I believe it's located in Inner Mongolia. So it's really sort of the 
the total microcosm of all of these trends where you have the biggest new solar behemoth with the old SOE for, for, for oil going to this uh, northern province to, to work on a big green hydrogen industrial uh, facility. So it's 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 100% an area which gets less external attention than it, than it really deserves to get. Now, in your paper, you talked about the power sector and there were some some uh, post 2020 breakthroughs uh, uh, three of them that I that I noted progress on power market liberalization provincial level renewable portfolio standards and policies to accelerate distributed renewables and the rhetoric around building a new and quote unquote new energy system has been entrenched now this is the this is no longer new this is this has become the status quo this is the so tell so tell us what that means in practical terms. Sure. So basically, since the uh, since the 14th five year plan, which was announced in March 2021, so six months after Shuangtan, um, there are these repeated references to a quote unquote new energy system. So historically, the five year plans related to energy were just around energy, right? And in 2021, we got the first signal that now we're considering how to build a new energy system. And Chinese rhetoric has been quite consistent that the new energy system should be based on renewables. And coal and these other sort of legacy industries also have a role to play, but primarily as an auxiliary supporting uh, supporting capacity to, to, to renewables as the kind of core. Now, what the new energy system really means is also sort of classic Chinese policy iteration uh, journey where we still don't really know because the Chinese officials themselves are experimenting and, you know, as, as Deng Xiaoping said, uh, crossing the river by finding the stones, right? They're, they're figuring out exactly what it means. Um, but I would, I would say that what you mentioned about liberalizing power markets is probably the clearest example of where since 2020, you've had a really big change in uh, power sector policy in China because traditionally power prices are set on an administrative level, basically as an industrial policy function to make investment more, uh, more, more, more easy. But since 2020, we've seen a lot of progress on opening spot markets, on improving uh, power trading between provinces, which historically they're very hesitant to do because they're sort of mercantilist on a provincial basis, right? So we're getting a lot of central signals to create uh, more power transmission, all of these things which are important to letting China's, you know, broad geographic space uh, better better utilize its renewable capacities as opposed to relying on local coal, which for most of China's industrial history has been how things work. Yeah, th this reminds me of what's going on in the United States. We're seeing a lot more liberalization of markets, plans to to build transmission, so that that as renewables ramp up in the U.S., there's more trading between regions. Uh, they're looking at uh, different types of spot markets. You know, the hour ahead market. You know, that I think it's California that has implemented that that sort of thing. And and you can see there's some parallels here. You know, yeah. the the U.S had a, a pretty creaky old power uh, power grid prior to the modernization that's been taking place over the last three to five years. And in some respects, it sounds kind of like, you know, China did as well. It, it wasn't, it you know, there are lots of coal plants, lots of parochialism and mercantilism, as you say, <laughs> in, the, in the trading of the, you know, and how one province approaches, you know, relations with another province. Uh, it, is that a fair way to describe that? I think so. I mean, the the real parallel would be if 
you know, rather than a small handful of big regional utilities like we have in the U.S., every single state had its own utility. And you didn't have any even from Ohio to Pennsylvania or, you know, Wyoming to Montana. If all of those were separate and informed by the local state government wanting to improve its, you know, yearly spending quotas, et cetera, that's just how separated the Chinese provincial system is in terms of power markets. So I would say the analogy is is fair, but it's even more extreme because the U.S. right now, it's, you know, five to 10 major sort of regional utilities. If it was 10 times as many in each state, then you would have a real uh, kind of parallel for just how many uh, different interests are uh, are all jockeying for 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 uh, for a equitable part of this transition, I guess you could say. Well, let's talk about clean energy industry, because there's been a lot of talk about this in the in the U.S., and I keep coming back to a couple of speeches I've read, one from November 2022 from Gina Riamundo, who's the Secretary of Commerce in the U.S., where the, the, the U.S. strategic approach to this, it's like, it's like 2020 came along and the U.S. went, hang on, hold the horse. You know, we're, we're not number one anymore. We're number three. And, you know, you're Americans. That's, that's not good enough. So, you know, Biden promised during his campaign in 2020 that that by 2030 the US would be number one in, in electric vehicles. I don't think it's going to happen, but nevertheless, they, they got it. And and uh Rio Mundo's speech talked about look, here's the strategic we're, this is partly geopolitical because China is now the the Cold War, you know, it's, it's Cold War 2.0, but this time instead of Russia, now it's it's China. Uh, that's where our competition is is from. The rising industry is, is, you know, the clean energy industry is dominated by China and, and the, the supply chain. All of that is, is, they see it as a strategic issue and strategic economic, strategic military, strategic politically. And, and, and they, and so in typical American fashion, they mobilized and, and it's gung ho and, you know, they're going to, and in Canada, my God, we're, we're like, it's like 10 years ago. It's like 20, it's like 2013. That's how far behind we are in terms of thinking about the global energy transition, who the players are, where the industry is, where the technology is going. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Let me put put, the grist for another conversation. So I guess where I'm going with this is let's probe some of these various industries. And because you talk, you do a little bit of a case study about uh, uh, wind, uh, wind turbine manufacturers what, what can you tell us about that sure well sort of the 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 section which you just mentioned in, in the paper is about offshore wind so you know sort of a newer younger subsection of, of of the wind industry in general and historically the europeans were really the leaders of offshore wind you know dating back to the 20th century when the, the danish get started after 1973 etc um but but what we've seen in the last few years is since 2015, basically, Chinese offshore wind companies are really um, sprouting up all across China's eastern coast. Very coincidentally, basically, every single province uh, along China's eastern seaboard has a uh, offshore wind industrial park. And this follows what was said, as I discussed earlier, in the 14th five-year plan in 2021, where offshore wind is, is highlighted as a strategic area where local governments and, and companies should, should, should be invested. Um, and as a result of that, now we have much stronger offshore wind growth in China in the last year than we do in the US or EU, where offshore wind is having a very difficult year with high interest rates, et cetera. 
Um, but also very similar to what we saw in solar in the 2010s, I think now we'll also get over the next five to 10 years, a market consolidation in those offshore wind companies between the different provinces. And at a certain point in time, there will be left standing a group of four to five major Chinese offshore wind companies, which are probably global leaders in terms of their size uh, and competitive with these European incumbents, which had 40 40 more years of uh, you know track record to build economies of scale, et cetera. But the Chinese uh, you know provincial governments are able to put together a similar accomplishment in you know twenty percent of that time, and that's sort of the 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 magic of of, of Chinese industrial policy, which which they are when they apply it to green sub industries, it's it's more effective than uh, almost anything else. I want to talk a little bit about solar because I ran across a statistic a few days ago. It took uh, 20 plus years to install the first uh, terawatt terawatt of, of solar capacity. The second terawatt will be installed within three years, and the third terawatt will be installed in 18 months after that. And what's China's is mostly driving this in one way or another. And of course, uh, we've now got, we used to call it rights law. Now we call it learning curves. When you double mm -hmm. the production of something, you get X amount of percentage of uh, reduction in costs. So it could be 15%, 20, 25%, which, you know, the IEA has correctly, uh, I think, uh, tagged as a reason why solar is just going to continue to grow because it's going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as we install more and more and more of it. Um, where Where is the Chinese solar industry now? Because it sounds like it's almost the most mature of the, the clean energy industries in China. It is. It is the most mature of them for sure, I would say. Interestingly, it's the Chinese solar industry just as a quick sort of uh, point of context, as I mentioned earlier, in the first nine months of this year, so not even full year 2023, China's done something on the order of 130 gigawatts of solar. So if we add in three more months at a similar pace, it's going to be over 150 gigawatts. Total, China has over 900 gigawatts combined of uh, solar and wind capacity together. This means that they're going to, they have a domestically set goal of 1200 gigawatts uh, of solar and wind by 2030. They're going to do that next year or the year after, you know, five years ahead of scale. That's how much, uh, how much acceleration is happening in their domestic deployments right now. However, uh, the interesting flip side of this is that there's a lot of sort of rumblings right now in China about um, solar, uh, the solar industry heading towards a, a potential period of overcapacity in terms of its industrial positioning. Um, the president of, of, of Longi Solar, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the big Chinese solar companies in a interview a few months ago, said that if the current enthusiasm holds throughout 2024 and so many different companies and provincial governments are getting into this solar manufacturing business through the end of next year, China's manufacturing capacity for solar could pass a thousand gigawatts capacity per year. That would be over four times global solar installation from last year, just as a level of magnitude in terms of the potential overheating, which we're discussing in the sector. So when that happens, you know, what happens to solar prices on an export basis? What happens to the capacity of China's domestic market to absorb all of that? That's a big question mark. And it's a much bigger question mark than the sort of 2009 parallel, which I discussed earlier, where 
the Chinese were big producers at that point as well, but nothing near the magnitude which we have today. Uh, and so where all this goes from here is a very interesting uh, uh, sort of watch point to consider over the next 12 months, which is just starting to come out into the sort of non-Chinese language media. I know uh, some of my listeners are, are sitting at home uh, or they're listening to this and saying, yes, yes, but coal, 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 you know, China and it's coal. And uh, which seems to dominate the conversation in Canada when it comes to, to China and renewable energy. So tell us, uh, what will all of this solar installation and the combined with the wind uh, do to China's coal consumption? And, and what will they do with the power plants uh, as presumably the coal consumption declines? Yeah, well, the first thing to note here is that, you know, China has been quite clear that uh that that it won't start reducing coal consumption until the 15 five-year plan that starts in 2026 so theoretically from a political point of view in china there is still a blessing for at least two to three more years of expanded coal consumption which of course is a big problem from a multilateral climate point of view but i think the major difference in this debate in terms of how china will get rid of its coal capacity versus how maybe the us or european countries will get rid of it is the range of policy functions which China can consider to reduce actual coal consumption is much wider than what is possible in the US or EU. There are scenarios where if, you know, five or 10 years from now, the, the new energy system progresses to the point where, where Chinese officials feel they don't need as much backup coal generation, um, I think they'll be very creative in finding ways to avoid coal consumption, even if there is a huge amount of coal capacity that doesn't necessarily mean that the consumption will rise, right? And we're already starting to see a few signs trickle out about, for example, capacity market payments for coal operators in China. We're starting to see sort of pairing coal facilities with renewable facilities. And so there's still a big, a big range of outcomes for how this can go. But I don't think that it's set in stone that just because these plants get built, they will be run at a high operating or capacity factor. That is an area where sort of, I think, investor concerns about, uh, you know, recouping capital and avoiding losses are a bit less suited to the Chinese context, because these are SOEs, these are local governments. And as we're seeing play out right now, for example, in the property sector in China, how those how those disputes ultimately get resolved is a very opaque and non-public process. And they can figure things out to these uh, problems, which are, which are sort of more difficult to do from a market point of view. But when you have more um, bureaucratic control over them, the range of solutions is larger. Sure, I, I you know building transmission in the United States and Canada is onerous, expensive, and it takes a long time. But I guess if you're in China and the local government decides that it needs once it's going to build some uh, renewables, it's going to reform the the power market so there's more trading and you need some transmission. Sure, we'll build build you some transmission, and right. it just gets built, and yeah. and 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 so it can move much quicker than than North America and and, and Europe can. Um, so, what happens now? I, I want to explore this idea of the um, the Chinese clean energy industry industries, and so we're talking uh, batteries, electric vehicles, solar, wind. Uh, would be the the main the main technologies. I'm sure there are are many others that aren't as well known. And it sounds like the last few years have been an inflection point for China's strategy. It was like, okay, first of all, we're going to do the domestic uh, domestic market. 
But now we're big enough and, and we can produce at low enough cost that we're ready to export. And now it's like we could, we're going to have a tsunami of Chinese exports and setting up of, of plants in other countries and so on. Is that what's what's happening here? Well, the the big thing which we've seen, I would say, the last six to 12 months in China is more focus on how China will achieve, quote unquote, high quality development. And part of that is how to achieve you know, attractive growth rates, but without some of the traditional growth sectors. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the property sector, which has been a huge driver of seven, eight percent growth in China over the last two decades, is in a much more uncertain state right now. And there's been a lot of conversation in China about whether these green industries can sort of step in to provide a more sustainable, higher quality path towards that type of manufacturing output. Um, and the reality is, of course, that in a lot of these green industries, especially I think if you take solar or batteries, it's very hard for other countries to expand sort of domestic supply chains without links to Chinese firms because they are so ubiquitous throughout different stages of the supply chain. And that applies to the U.S. You know, since the IRA was 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 adopted last year, and this year is sort of when we've seen the real factory announcements uh, sort of take pace in the U.S. There's been a number of uh, Chinese solar firms partnering with U.S. developers to build factories in the U.S. because because there's only so much which you can do without them, really. And they have lots of sort of um, dry powder capital, which they're ready to deploy and they want to access these other markets. And the only way for them to get into the U.S. market, for example, is a direct factory because they can't import, right, because of the, the, the trade duties which are there. So this is also part of China's, um, you know, efforts to brand its kind of commercial diplomacy as a little bit greener, more sustainable, more quote unquote win-win is always a major part of Chinese um, government rhetoric. So yeah, it is a new moment for them where they're able to both have huge growth only on a domestic level, but then they're also able to get a little bit more confident in terms of going international, particularly if they want to maintain even larger growth rates. What are we to make of the Chinese government's recent announcement that it is going to restrict the export of graphite? Yeah, so I think the graphite, the most important thing to remember for the graphite news is that this was done as a part of the broader tech conflict, right? This is primarily a response to the latest round of semiconductor controls from the U.S. earlier in October. So I don't think that the graphite news is suggestive of a proactive decision by China to weaponize green supply chains. I think that's been kind of suggested here and there over the last week or so. I think that loses the key factor that this is primarily in the context of tech restrictions on, on semiconductors. Further, what we've seen on the graphite is it's an export license requirement. So it's not an export ban. In fact, it's very possible that Beijing will just approve everyone who applies for a license, right? And there will be no market impact. So I think that the real impact of the graphite uh, news from last week shows that China is willing to take potential steps through in some of these green supply chains. But I don't think it's conclusive evidence that that will happen yet. I think this is still sort of more accurately seen in the context of what provoked it in the first place, which is the ship restrictions. One of the points that, uh, that was made in a Bloomberg NEF uh, story that I was reading uh, is that it's possible that the restrictions, uh, if if they turn out to be restrictions, on graphite export uh, will actually have the opposite effect, maybe what the Chinese are, are hoping, which is it'll spur the development of graphite uh, uh, factories and manufacturing in other regions, 
principally, I guess, the EU and the and the U.S. Yes, that's certainly possible. I mean, DOE is already very interested in this in the U.S. and also the Department of Defense, defense because graphite has defense applications. And you know, the 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 very I'm not sure what the right adjective is. Poetic part of this is a parallel argument is made on the Chinese side about U.S. tech controls on ships, right? Where they say, okay, obviously we're not happy about this, but this will just force our domestic chip capabilities to ramp up towards yours, where right now China is, 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 is behind the U.S. on a chip point of view, just like the U.S. might be behind China on graphite right now. So yeah, how those two storylines play out, um, I'm, I think it's still very early to say, but certainly the, the graphite news from last week will pr provoke more U.S. public interest in expanding domestic production. I have to tell you, when I was reading that story, the thing that popped into my head was Jigger Shaw sitting at his uh, his desk uh, overseeing the Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy loan program, and thinking, "Aha, we need a strategy, and we're mm -hmm. going to go out and we're going to we're going to build that supply chain, and by God, we'll have we'll be shovels in the ground in in no time at all." And 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 I, given what he he's done in hydrogen and and other sectors, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what happens. And then it reminded me, you know, of the response in sleepy old Ottawa, you know, where the federal bureaucrats wake up and go, "Oh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> that will muddle through. Uh, whatever." And never, despite the fact there might be opportunities for for Canada to do this, eh, we'll get to it one one of these days. It just it's very frustrating to see these opportunities emerge because I've argued for a long time that there are, are two basic fundamental responses to the energy transition. One is you have to mitigate risk. So Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil in the world and the fifth largest producer of gas. It is, and and uh, its exports to mostly to the US of, of oil and gas are about 120 billion a year, right? It's the biggest export, like double automobiles. It's huge. So. Canada has has to mitigate the risk that those that those industries are going to experience. And then the second thing is opportunities. Because there are just the range of opportunities. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of them here, but I mean this is this is a small fraction of what the opportunities are in various supply chains and the building the industrial clusters around the various clean energy technologies on and on and on, you know. And and I'll I'll tell the story again because the I was interviewing Bloomberg NEF's metals and mining uh, uh, analyst uh, whose name I've I've forgotten, but we were talking about Canada's opportunities and sorry specifically about Alberta, and and I said well you know got to have a decade right to move on this thing but surely surely seven or eight years to twenty thirty he said you've got two to five years because it's not just China. There are all sorts of other middle-income uh, countries, like, and he mentioned the, some of the Southeast Asia ones, like Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia. He said th they've been planning on this for a long time, and they're very aggressive, and they they have identified the opportunities around clean energy uh, industry, and and they they see this as their big opportunity to take a step change forward in their in their economy. So those are your competitors, not necessarily China and the U.S. And, you know, that argument just falls on deaf, deaf ears here. Anyway, this is a familiar rant to <laughs> listeners of the Energy Talks podcast, trust me. Um, but is that is then that the case? I mean, it's not just China here, but it's all these other smaller countries that are on the periphery uh, that kind of play in that space. 
Yeah. And, you know, from the U.S. point of view, you know, there's IRA provisions about, um, you know, critical mineral sourcing. And if they're from countries which have a free trade agreement with the U.S., that sort of gets you automatically in the door to qualify for various uh, subsidies. So there's there's uh, different tier rankings, I think, where, you know, for example, Canada does already have certain advantages to qualify for some of those. But the 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 crowd, so to speak, of, of different countries who want a specific part of this green industrial supply chain is growing every day, you know, and um, who will end up with which components of it on a cost effective basis on a mercantilist basis, that's playing out in, in different ways all over the place. And is, uh, you know, a big part of what we analyze at Eurasia Group, because it's so politically driven, and it will also have huge political implications over sort of the medium term, you know, five to 10 years from now. Well, let's wrap up our conversation, Herbert, with some your take on what we're going to see for the rest of the 2030s. And I, I mentioned this because uh, in my my take on energy transitions is uh, follow the S-curve, right? The technology adoption S-curve. So you you have a long tail at the bottom of the S, at the bottom of the S where the technologies are are introduced to the market and then they're not comp very competitive, but it takes them a long time to become competitive. Then once they are, they hit the inflection point and then they take off with exponential growth uh, up the, the shaft of the, of the S-curve uh, and eventually over a period of time, they push the, the old technologies out. And the 2020s to me are just like the 1920s when you had the internal combustion engine and cheap petroleum, you know, that's, it's that, inflection is that disruptive decade where things are just crazy and and the old technology is you know dying and the new one is is taking over and all of that stuff so this decade the the, the next six years are absolutely critical for europe and 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 the u.s and for canada uh would you agree with that and where if if so so I see you nodding your head, so I'm going to assume that you mostly will. Uh, but if so, then what does the, what happens over those six years? What do the EU and the U.S. have to do to make sure that they are not absolutely dominated by the kinds of developments that we've been talking about today in China? Yeah, well, I, I do agree with the framing. I think all of the the technology curves which we're seeing right now will will certainly reach maturity in the next few years and and accelerate drastically, um, you know, post 2030. I think the US and EU have a, a very, very uphill um, task in, in reaching anything like uh, China's current grip on, on a lot of these green industrial uh, subcomponents. You know, things as basic as energy input costs are a big driver of China's uh, dominance in these, in these, uh, in these industries. The political stability in China is crucial behind this. And, you know, maybe not so much on the EU point of view, but for the US, you know, from administration to administration, whether IRA subsidies will still be in effect, this is a major question, right? And this is already a part of uh, investment risk calculus for new projects. So there are definitely a number of short term uh, signposts, I would say, in terms of different elections and uh, and 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 external drivers, which will determine whether the industrial policy playbooks in the U.S. and EU can be effective 
in building any sort of parallel to a lot of these big Chinese firms. Um, and the other really uh, key component, which I think is worth watching over the next few years, is how these Chinese firms approach all of the political nuance, which is part of their uh, path of going international, because many of them haven't really dealt with it before. They're not the same companies which they were uh, you know, 15 years ago, and the global political environment is not what it was 15 years ago. So the degree to which other countries are willing to work with them the thing, the questions around, you know, technology transfer, local labor interests, so on and so forth. There's so much uh, that underlies that question of how Chinese companies will go global in these industries. I think that's the other really key watch point in determining uh, whether the U.S. and uh, EU will be able to carve out a good, uh, uh, a good piece of this pie over the longer term as well. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. And, and the whole one of the, the key points of the you know disruptive decade argument is that uh, you're disrupting old industries like the oil and gas producers, uh, disrupting their business models. So they're they're searching around for what how are they going to you know are they going to double down on the status quo or are they going to try to pivot to something you know in the in the new uh, business model space, um, and and then you've got the the new technologies coming in and disrupting markets and you know, cons changing consumer habits and all sort you know, supply chains that are changing and, and very, very disruptive. So on the one hand, we can see the, the, the big general trends, you know, in terms of solar adoption, EV adoption, and, and so we know where those are going, but how it'll play out on the ground in any particular region and, and what the time frame might be uh, is very difficult at this point, just because of the high degree of disruption. And so I think you're quite right to say, you know, you made the point throughout the interview, you know, like this is where they're going or this is what the policy framework or this is what they'd like to do, but they haven't done it before. And or maybe, you know, they we haven't done it at this scale before. Or, and and that so it's not even a, a guarantee that China uh, will continue on quite the same path that it has. And we'll see if you, the EU and the and the US are able to rise, you know, to meet the challenge, the economic and political challenge, and and remain competitive, or will they get subsumed by the the Chinese tsunami? Uh, <laughs> and we'll see. I mean, it, God, isn't it a great time to be alive? It's phenomenal. Yeah, it's very exciting. Well, look, Herbert, thank you very much for this. You you provided a tremendous amount of insight into what's going on in China and how that will how that plays out in various industries in, in other countries. And I uh, really appreciate this and we'll look forward to having you on again. Likewise. Thanks very much, Martin.